When I went to medical school and I began learning how to do bypass surgery to treat heart disease, you know, we cut people open, we bypass their clogged arteries, uh, the doctors would tell people they were cured, and then they'd often go home and do all the things that had led to the problem in the first place. And we were literally bypassing the problem rather than treating the cause, like mopping up the floor around a sink that's overflowing without also turning off the faucet. Well, hello there, and welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thanks so much for taking the time to give the show a listen, a download, a view, wherever it is that you are. As always, we appreciate the fact that you are here. We are coming off an extraordinary three days at the International Conference on Nutrition in Medicine. It was so great to see so many familiar faces and to make a ton of new friends. And to each and every one of the exam room listeners who took the time to come up and say hi, talking about Brenda, I'm talking about Tammy, I'm talking about so many others, I cannot tell each one of you how much I enjoyed speaking speaking with you. You guys are just amazing. And man, did everyone there leave all sorts of pumped up and energized. The conference, it was three days of hope, inspiration, and most importantly, life-saving information. About a thousand doctors, medical students, nurses, dietitians, and people who simply wanted to arm themselves with the best research possible all filled this enormous conference room. There were tables everywhere. And as every one of those presenters was up on stage talking about the research, if you looked out into the audience, you could see the glow of scores of laptops with fingers feverishly typing. And next to them, pens scribbling at breakneck speed, page after page of notebooks being filled with game-changing science. And do you know what that means? It means that everyone there can now take that information and pass it on. It means that those doctors, those medical professionals, they can now rethink the way that they've been treating patients. They can talk about treating the cause of the disease and not just treating the symptom. That is what it's all about. And throughout the conference, I was lucky enough to have the chance to interview so many of those great presenters and honorees. And over the course of the next few weeks, we'll be rolling out those conversations. And I hope that you too will be jotting down notes so that you can share them with your loved ones as well. So there are so many great guests coming up. Let me, let me run down this list for you. Everyone from Dr. Joel Kahn, he shared his three new reasons not to eat red meat. And then there was Dr. Robert Osfeld who joined me to give his thoughts on the resurgence of the Atkins diet. After all these years, it's making a comeback. And Dr. Ashley Bush, who joined me, he gave some exciting updates on Alzheimer's research that he's conducting all the way in Australia, looking at the effects of iron on the brain. And dietitian Karen Smith, she was there. She talked about overcoming that weight loss plateau. Anybody who's ever tried to lose weight, there's a good chance you've experienced this. You lose weight, you're doing good for a month or two, and then all of a sudden, it just flattens right out. You stop. So how do you overcome that plateau? How do you keep that weight to keep coming off? 
and Dr. Steve Loam. You may not know his name, but his story, you're certainly going to remember. He's a guy who competed in a triathlon in Chicago, mind you, the morning after last year's conference. The conference ends around 6 o'clock at night, and by, oh, I don't know, 5, 6 o'clock the next morning in Chicago, he's competing in a triathlon. Washington, D.C. to Chicago, triathlon Amazing story. He's also a heck of a cardiologist, and there were about 20 other amazing individuals who joined me as well. So many incredible stories. And we're going to start our series today with Dr. Dean Ornish. You heard him at the top. Dr. Ornish was honored at the conference Friday night with the Benjamin Spock Award for Compassion in Medicine. And it's because he's changed the health outlook of tens of thousands of people over his storied career. Many of them are huge celebrities, but perhaps none of them is more famous than the man that surprised him at the awards banquet with a video message of congratulations. And that man is former president Bill Clinton. And so the morning after the celebration, Dr. Ornish was kind enough to join me for a special Facebook live edition of the Exam Room podcast. And what you're going to hear today is the audio from that interview, most of which, by the way, was driven by viewer questions, driven by your questions. And he graciously answered one after another after another. All kinds of questions like, what are the best foods to eat to live a longer life? And what role does oil play in heart disease? And what about the use of statins after adopting a plant-based diet? Do we still need to do that? And, And one of the things that I think that a lot of people, especially in middle age, can appreciate, not just with themselves, but for their parents as well, is whether or not the elderly will experience benefits by changing the way that they eat even that late in life. Before we bring on Dr. Ornish, I want to let you know that today's conversation on the exam room is being brought to you by the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund. You've heard me talk about these guys for weeks now. It's because they are exceptional, extraordinary people. That fund, it supports organizations that carry on Greg's passion and the love that he had for animals through rescue efforts and veganism and wildlife conservation. So I encourage you, please, to visit GregoryWriterFund.org. That's Gregory, R-E-I-T-E-R, Fund.org, where you can learn more about Greg's incredible story. And you can also read up about animal welfare issues and subscribe to their newsletter. Do that right now by checking out the link that we've posted in the show notes for this episode. Welcome to a special Facebook Live edition of the Exam Room Podcast brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll, and it is such an honor to be joined this morning by Dr. Dean Ornish. Man, what a privilege this is. Thank you. Right back at you. And so here we sit at the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine, and this has been quite the weekend for you. Uh, You got the the big award last night. I feel very grateful. It was uh, a real honor for my wife, Anne, and me to except the uh, Benjamin Spock Compassion and Medicine Award, and especially to have Mary, his wife, here uh, to celebrate with us. 
How great is Mary? I mean, you see her off camera right now. You won't be able to see this watching on Facebook, obviously. But this woman, she, she is just energy personified. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> um, you got a chance to, to work a little bit with Dr. Spock, didn't you? They both came to one of our retreats. It must have been 30 years ago. So we became friends then. And like so many millions of people, I've admired their work for decades. And it just makes it that much more meaningful to um, be the recipient of this award. So we're, Anne and I are deeply grateful. Well, you, you've uh, really inspired a, a lot of people as well. Uh, 35 years, more than 35 years of research yeah, more at this than point? 40 at this point. But more I'm, than 40. I'm really 96. I look pretty good, don't yeah, you? Yeah, I would say so, man. <laughs> Not a we day should all be 95. so lucky. <laughs> um, I think that, you know, what brought you to plants? That's, that's kind of my first question for you is, is how did you arrive at this? I initially got interested in doing this work out of my own pain when I was suicidally depressed when I was in college when I was 19 and came very close to doing myself in. Mm. And I had the good fortune to meet an ecumenical spiritual teacher named Swami Satchidananda. And he said, you know, if you change your diet and become a vegetarian and exercise and meditate and have more love in your life, it'll really change your life and turn it around. And so I thought, okay, well, uh, he looks pretty happy. Let me, um, I can always kill myself. I'll move that down to plan B. Let me try this weird stuff. Having uh, grown up in Texas eating, you know, chilies and cheeseburgers and chalupas every day. And I found uh, how quickly I began to feel better. And I began to quiet down my mind and experience more, even moments of inner peace and well-being. And realize that, as he said, that's our natural state is to be happy and healthy until we disturb it. And not being mindful of that, we end up doing these things that, you know, like what we eat, that disturb our health, that we end up running after so many things. If only I had more money or power or more beauty or accomplishment or whatever, then I'd be happy. Then people would love me. Then I wouldn't feel so lonely. Once you set up that view of the world, however it turns out, you generally feel bad because until you get it, you feel bad. If someone else gets it and you don't, then you feel really bad. And even if you get it, it's good for a few minutes, maybe a little bit longer, but it's often followed by either now what, it's never enough, or so what, it doesn't really provide that lasting sense of meaning. So when I went to medical school and I began learning how to do bypass surgery to treat heart disease, you know, we cut people open, we bypass their clogged arteries, uh, the doctors would tell people they were cured, and then they'd often go home and do all the things that had led to the problem in the first place. And we were literally bypassing the problem rather than treating the cause, like mopping up the floor around a sink that's overflowing without also turning off the faucet. And even today when people get put on medications to lower their cholesterol or their blood pressure or their blood sugar, and they say, doctor, how long do I have to take these? What does the doctor usually say? Like forever, right? Right. It's like, how long do I have to mop up the floor around this sink that's overflowing? Like forever. Well, why don't we just turn off the faucet? And the faucet or the cause are really these lifestyle choices that we make each day. And what we find over and over again that continues to inspire me is that our bodies often have a remarkable capacity to begin healing and much more quickly than we had once realized if we treat the cause, which are these lifestyle choices. So then it becomes not just changing your diet and lifestyle to prevent something bad from happening years down the road. That's not really sustainable. But that what you gain is so much more than what you give up. And because these underlying biological mechanisms are so dynamic, when you make big changes in your diet and lifestyle to the degree that you make them, most people find they feel so much better so quickly. It reframes the reason from change, from fear of dying to joy and pleasure and love and feeling good, which, which are sustainable. You know, your brain gets more blood. You think more clearly. You have more energy. You need less sleep. You can actually 
grows so many new brain neurons in just a few weeks, your brain can actually get bigger. <laughs> your skin gets more blood. You look 10 or 20 years younger. Your heart gets more blood. You can reverse heart disease. If you're an athlete, you have more stamina. You can become an Olympic medalist or a, you know, a, a, a mixed martial artist national champion. If you look at this new film called The Game Changers that comes out in September, your sexual organs get more blood flow in the same way that Viagra works. And so you go, you start to connect the dots between what you do and how you feel. It's like, oh, when I eat this way, when I live this way, I feel good. When I do this, I don't feel so good. So maybe I'll do more of this and less of that. And then it comes out of your own experience, not because some doctor or some authority told you, but you literally connect the dots between what you do and how you feel right. and how quickly you can feel better when you make these choices. At, at this conference, we talk a lot about nutrition. That's, that's the focus of it. But you, you just brought up the word lifestyle so many times. You know, is, is it When it comes to overall wellness, is it equal parts lifestyle and nutrition, lifestyle and diet, or does one outweigh the other slightly? Well, I see lifestyle, including diet. You know, eat well, move more, stress less, love more. Boom, that's it. And they all work together in a synergistic way. The, the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Uh, we're conducting now the first randomized control trial to see whether these same lifestyle changes may reverse the progression of early-stage Alzheimer's disease. It's just another, we don't know if it will yet or not. And if anyone's watching this and you live in the San Francisco area, uh, give us a call. We're still enrolling patients. But it's just another example that I was trained, like all doctors, to see heart disease and diabetes and Alzheimer's and prostate cancer and high blood pressure and high cholesterol as being fundamentally different diseases, different diagnoses, and different treatments. But in my new book called Undo It, which my wife Ann and I co-authored, we're putting forth this uh, radical unifying theory, which is that they're really the same disease manifesting and masquerading in different forms. And I say that because all of these different chronic diseases that I mentioned share the same underlying biological mechanisms, things like chronic inflammation, oxidative stress, changes in the microbiome, and telomeres, and gene expression, and angiogenesis, and so on. And each one of these mechanisms, in turn, is directly influenced by what we eat, how we respond to stress, how much exercise we get, and how much love and support we have. And the more diseases we study, and the more underlying biological mechanisms we do research on, the more scientific evidence we have to show how quickly you can get better and how powerful these simple changes are. You know, we often think in, in our country that in order to be powerful, it has to be something really high-tech and expensive, a new drug, a new laser. And yet, what I think our unique contribution has been to use these very high-tech, expensive, state-of-the-art scientific measures to prove how powerful these very simple and low-tech and low-cost and often ancient interventions can be. And, you know, Medicare is even covering our, our program for reversing heart disease, and most insurance companies are throughout the country. We've been working with a company called ShareCare to train hospitals and clinics around the country, and it's working. We're getting bigger changes in lifestyle, better clinical outcomes, bigger cost savings, and better adherence than anyone's ever shown. And it's cutting costs in half in the first year. Wow. So if we want to really make better care available to more people at lower costs, we need to address the really fundamental causes. And it really comes down to the lifestyle choices that we make each day. Everything gets better. And also, what's good for you is good for the planet. What's personally sure. sustainable is globally sustainable. You know, more global warming is caused by livestock consumption than all forms of transportation combined. 
It takes 10 to 14 times more resources to make a pound of meat-based protein than plant-based protein. So a lot of millennials and younger people are saying, you know, what can I do to make a difference in global warming and feeding the hungry? And something as primal as we, we put in our mouths each day can make a difference. It really imbues those choices with meaning. And for many people, the idea of having a hotter sex in a cooler planet is a great motivator for making these changes. Everybody gets better. That is the ultimate motivator. <laughs> um, you, you brought up plant-based protein, and, and right now you're seeing the stock market explode with Beyond Meat, and you're hearing all of this about the Impossible Burger and you know uh, all these mock sausages and you know, fast food restaurants now adding uh, vegan options. As somebody who's worked extensively in cardiology, the ins, the outs of the heart, what's your opinion on these mock meats that are all the rage right now? Well, I think they're great transition foods for a lot of people. You know, I grew up in Texas eating meat all the time and stopped doing that when I was 19. So for, you know, when I, I've been working with Bill Clinton when he, since he was president in 1993. We, we put what were then called Boca Burgers in the White House and Camp David Air Force One. It was a good transition food for him. Yeah. Uh, he's now on a whole foods plant-based diet for the last 10 years that I've been working with him on because his bypass is clogged up and he realized that's what's going to keep them open. He's been doing really well. He made a really nice video testimonial last night, which is a surprise to me, which I was really grateful for. So I think that the Beyond Meat in particular, I think, is a, is a really great product, um, especially as a transition food. It's a little higher in fat and saturated fat in particular, but, you know, it's a step in the right direction. I like the Beyond Meat burger better than the Impossible Burger because the Impossible Burger is, much, is completely uh, genetically modified and uh, has a lot of heme in there. And I think the heme is the part of the meat that oxidizes cholesterol to a form that makes it more dangerous so that even though it's plant-based, I think the jury's still out about whether it's really safe or not. That is a phenomenal answer. That is the most in-depth answer I've gotten on, on that question yet. So thank you very much for, for breaking that down. Sure. Um, real quick, before I ask you another question, I should let the viewers know that if you have a question for Dr. Ornish, go ahead and post it below. We will get to as many as possible during this interview. Um, you brought up working with President Clinton, and if you go to your website, we see you there with uh, President Obama, and then we see a picture of Quincy Jones and Clint Eastwood. <laughs> I mean, how did you get uh, linked up with, with such prominent people? Uh, in different ways. They heard about my work through different people and we met and I feel very privileged to uh, be working. I, I met Quincy Jones uh, 35 years ago at one of the original TED conferences. We were both speaking there and wow. uh, he came up to me and said, you're Dean Ornish. I said, you're Quincy Jones. And it was like some old soul recognition. Actually, we've been very close friends. He's actually my son's godfather. And so we have a very special relationship. But I've known uh, many of these people and have had the privilege of working with with some wonderful uh, people over the years. And um, it's wonderful because they're not only great people, but because we live in such a celebrity-driven culture, when people of that stature begin to change, I think it inspires other people to do the same. All right, let's uh, get a couple of questions in from Facebook. Uh, the first one comes from Taney Walker. She says, thanks, Dr. Ornish. Uh, I love not having to be on insulin due to a plant-based diet. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So not so much of a question as... <laughs> My favorite you. question. <laughs> the answer is thank you. <laughs> uh, Adam asked, if you had to choose, which has been more of an influence overall, uh, diet or love? I think we kind of covered that a little bit already. Uh, that's like saying, which of your children do you like the best? Um, they're all important, and they all interact with each other. You know, oftentimes people eat, or when, or you know, they overeat, or drink too much, or work too hard, or smoke cigarettes, or play too many video games when they don't have enough love, when they feel lonely and depressed. Which I think is the real epidemic in our culture with the breakdown of these social networks is loneliness and depression. 
And study after study have shown that people who are lonely and depressed are three to ten times more likely to get sick and die prematurely from virtually all causes when compared to those who have a sense of love and connection and community. Yep. And I don't know anything that has that powerful an impact. And so information is important, but it's not like people don't know that smoking is bad for them. I mean, in the year of Google, you can get you know, a fraction of a second, you get hundreds of thousands of, in, of bits of information. And focusing on behavior is not enough. Uh, you know, you can try to force yourself to change, but that doesn't work so well. But so often people say things like, you know, uh, fat coats my nerves and numbs the, the emotional pain, or food fills that void, or I've got 20 friends in this pack of cigarettes, or opioids numb the pain, or working all the time numbs the pain, or video games numb the pain. You know, and so if we work at that level and we find help people use meditation and other techniques to quiet down your mind and body, to rediscover inner sources of peace and joy and love, to be more loving, compassionate towards ourselves and to other people, then we find that people are much more likely to make and maintain lifestyle choices that are life-enhancing than ones that are self-destructive. You know, it, it, it just gets me to thinking. When I was still 420 pounds, it's like... I had acquaintances. I wouldn't exactly say that I had friends, but food, food was my friend. That fat did soothe the nerves, but well, I was living see, more four, or less in four, complete isolation. Well, 420 makes you hungry, but that's the other thing. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this guy, he's got jokes for days. Uh, but but it, it does make perfect sense to me, though. So when you were that heavy, was were you using food as a way of dealing with your pain? Oh, absolutely. There's yeah. no question. I mean, I could physically feel kind of like this this wave of tranquility wash over me when I would bite into you know See, that's what my vice. So if you if somebody just says, well, did you know that eating that being 420 pounds is not healthy? You go, uh, really? Tell Duh. me something I don't yeah. know. Yeah, so yeah. It's, it wasn't that you didn't know that that was bad for you. What helped, What enabled you to make that shift? I wanted to live. I wanted to have a better love life. You know, the, the same kind of motivators that, that we were talking about today. And yeah. frankly, you know, I was just tired. I was going to be too big for clothes. I had a 66-inch waist. I mean, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not the tallest guy in the world. Like, I was running out of time. I was running out of options. Right. You know? and, and it made a difference for you. Huge. Yeah. Huge. And it wasn't just to live longer, but also to live better, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and that's what makes life. it sustainable, is that what you gain, if what you gain is more than what you give up, then it's, then it's sustainable. And because these underlying biological mechanisms we've been talking about are so dynamic, most people feel so much better so quickly. Even a single meal can make a difference. Yep. I mean, if you're watching this, don't take my word for it. You know, do it for two or three days. Just do on the diet that I talk about in my new book, Undo It, or the, what, what's, what they're advocating here at the conference. And you will see from your own experience, and the worse you feel, the more dramatic the improvements are likely to be. Question from uh, Amanda. How does consuming oil play a role in heart disease? Well, oil is 100% fat. Uh, some oils are healthier than others. I mean, for example, the omega-3 fatty acids that you find in the plankton base or for people who eat fish and fish oil can be helpful. But most people get too much fat. It's, fat has nine calories per gram, and protein and carbs have only four. One tablespoon of any oil has 120, 130 calories. So, you know, by pouring it on your food or dipping your bread in it, you get tons of calories that really don't fill you up. It's one of the easiest ways to lose weight is to cut back on the fat, and particularly on the oil, which is just pure fat. Yep. And some oils are certainly a lot healthier for you, or less unhealthy than, than others. Uh, but to the degree you can, I think, reduce the amount of oil in your diet in general, you can eat more and weigh less. You can feel better, look better, uh, lose weight, and gain health. Would you agree that that's one of the things that people trying to transition to a whole food plant-based diet struggle with most at first is trying to 
find foods that don't contain that oil, especially if they're buying something prepackaged in the store or they're going out to eat? You know, it's just assumed that that oil's in there. Uh, it, it can be, but, you know, with a few exceptions, plant-based foods are not that high in fat, or not right. that, other than the oils or a few things like avocados and, and nuts and so on. But even seeds and nuts in moderation are good for you, even though they're high in fat, because, you know, seeds and nuts are, are plants that have yet to grow. They, there's a germinative quality. You know, the, it doesn't sound very scientific, but the life force is, is strong in there. And many studies have shown that even though they're high in fat, small amounts of seeds and nuts are really good for you. And so we recommend those as well. We'll get right back to your questions in a second, but I wanted to let you know that today's show, our interview with Dr. Ornish on the exam room, it's being brought to you by the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund. So why are we talking about this fund? Why do we keep mentioning it? It's because of the work that they are doing. The fund supports organizations carrying on Greg's passion, that love that he had for animals through rescue efforts or veganism or wildlife conservation. Right now, I encourage you, please visit GregoryRiderFund.org. That's Gregory, R-E-I. TERfund.org. There you can learn more about Greg's incredible story, and you can also learn about current issues surrounding animal welfare. And while you're there, subscribe to the fund's newsletter. A link to their website can also be found in the show notes for this episode. Question from Irma. I have high cholesterol not caused by diet, so I'm on statins on top of eating mostly plant-based for two years now. Is there anything else I can do to bring down my cholesterol? All the other blood work is good. Well, you know, a lot of people think it's genetic, and there's a genetic predisposition that goes across the spectrum. But for people who are genetically um, not as efficient at getting rid of fat and cholesterol in their diet, even though they, the moderate changes that most doctors recommend won't cause your cholesterol to come down very much. But we found in our studies there was a 40% average reduction in LDL. This is comparable to what you get in statins. Now, one out of you know, 999 people has a homozygous hypercholesterolemia. But even then, the, the diet will cause you to need less of the statins. But also, independent of diet, emotional stress will raise your cholesterol. When they've done studies of uh, race car drivers after a race compared to before or tax accountants around April 15th or students <laughs> after they've had a hard exam, their, their cholesterol levels go up. So separate and apart from diet, the exercise and the stress management and the social support will have an effect on your cholesterol as well and especially on your health. I would imagine April 15th for accountants is like just <laughs> super crunch time. It's crunch time. Uh, Joel wants to know what are some of the best foods to eat for longevity? Anything that comes from, you know, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, and their natural forms are the, are the best foods for longevity. They're low in the substances that promote diseases, and they actually have hundreds of thousands of protective ones that have anti-cancer, anti-heart disease, and even anti-aging properties. This next question I really like. Uh, it comes from Robin, who writes, Can a whole food plant-based diet improve the quality of life for the older population? She says... The average age of her patient is about 85. 
You know, when I started doing this work, I thought, uh, incorrectly as it turned out, that the younger patients who had milder disease would do better, but I was wrong. It turned out that in all of our studies over 40 years, it wasn't how old people were, it wasn't how sick they were, it was simply a function of the more you change your lifestyle, the more you improve at any age. And so I think this is particularly beneficial for older people. That's one of the reasons why Medicare is covering my program for reversing heart disease, because it works so well in the Medicare population. Yeah, and, and somebody close uh, in my life, um, older woman, she now is uh, unfortunately in a rehabilitation center. You can call it a nursing home. She's had diabetes for years. Uh, dementia is starting to set in a little bit. She's got her foot, you know, firmly in the sand, doesn't want to change up her diet. But I'm always curious, you know, somebody who's reached that level where, you know, they've been on diabetes medication now for so long, for so many years, the mind is starting to slip a little bit. How much of that can be reversed? Well, I think that's a person, the way you've described it, who could particularly benefit from this kind of approach because they're not, I mean, at some point, if someone becomes, you know, totally demented, they can't recognize, you know, their, their spouse or someone, that may be one thing. But as they are going down that road, those are the people in whom these lifestyle changes can be often cause the most dramatic improvements. Uh, Non-Alzheimer's dementia has been shown to be reversible for many people. Uh, Jim Blumenthal at Duke did a wonderful study about six months ago that found that diet alone wasn't enough, uh, exercise alone wasn't enough, stress management alone wasn't enough, but when you combine them all in non-Alzheimer's dementia, you could often reverse that. Uh, certainly we see over and over again people with type 2 diabetes who make these changes can reduce or often under their doctor's supervision get off of the insulin or the blood pressure medications or the cholesterol-lowering drugs that they were told they'd have to take forever. Now clearly if you're taking these medications don't make these changes without going under doctor's supervision but the fact is that many if not most people can reduce or get off these medications altogether if they make big enough changes in their lifestyle at any age. Eric writes, my dad passed from heart disease in 1998. Do you think things have changed since then? And are you happy about the changes on people's view of plant-based diets? Uh, they have changed because in 2008, Medicare agreed to cover my program for reversing heart disease. Uh, before that, we, through my nonprofit institute, we'd train hospitals and clinics throughout the country. And we were getting bigger changes in lifestyle, better clinical outcomes, bigger cost savings, and better adherence than anyone's ever shown. But a number of the sites closed down because we didn't have the insurance to, to reimburse it. And the mm. painful lesson was that if it's not reimbursable, it's not sustainable. But now it is. And now that Medicare is paying for it, most of the other insurance companies are. So we've been training hospitals and clinics and physician groups with a company called ShareCare throughout the country. And it's working. And so now people have choices that they didn't have before. And when you change medical reimbursement, it changes medical practice and even medical education. But also, I think there's a convergence of forces that's happened in the last 10 years that are making it clearer to people that it, this is the right idea at the right time. Because on the one hand, the limitations of drugs and surgery are becoming increasingly well documented. Uh, there are now eight randomized trials that have shown that in stable patients, bypass surgery and stents really don't work. They don't prolong life, prevent heart attacks, or even reduce angina. And yet, we can reverse that by simply changing diet and lifestyle. If you have type 2 diabetes, and today half the American population is either diabetic or pre-diabetic, uh, getting your blood sugar down with drugs doesn't prevent the horrible complications of type 2 diabetes nearly as well as getting it down with diet and lifestyle. And so the combination of changing reimbursement, the scientific evidence showing the limitations of drugs and surgery, which, by the way, used properly can be life-saving, but they don't really address the cause, and the combination of 
the realization that people are able to make these changes. It's so much easier now to do than it was before. There's so many commercially available products out there in the market that make it easy to, to eat this way. Our program is now available throughout the U.S. If you just go to Ornish.com, it lists all the sites that we've trained. So I think we're in the era of what I call the era of lifestyle medicine, which is a field that I help create, which is using lifestyle changes not only to help prevent disease, but often to treat and even reverse it. And I think um, all these forces are finally coming together that our, our time has finally come. I mean, that's that 40 years of work coming, you know. That's that hard work, <laughs> man. You just kept on pushing. Uh, May writes, I was on a vegetarian diet to lose weight, but my B12 was low, so my doctor recommended that I include meat in my diet. What can I do to maintain an ideal weight? Well, uh, the one thing that you can't get in a, a vegan diet is B12. But B12 is so easy, you just take a vitamin pill. You know, you don't need to uh, eat meat to get that. And uh, you, your body has a five to seven year store of B12. It's actually hard to get low on B12. But rather than eating meat, just take a vitamin B12 pill. That's the easiest way to do it. And then you get all the benefits of eating a plant-based diet without the problems that come along with eating meat. So when you have a patient who is on a plant-based diet and they're speaking to their primary care physician about it, but the physician isn't really familiar with it, how would you recommend that patient introduce them to that idea? Well, unfortunately, we don't really get much nutrition training as doctors. I wrote a, I co-authored a paper with other members of the American College of Cardiology's Nutrition Committee that I'm on, and we surveyed how much nutrition training most doctors get. And the average doctor gets four hours a year, you know, and, and it's hardly any. And the average cardiologist in four hours of fellowship training gets zero training in nutrition. So most doctors are not familiar. You know, we're not trained. We're trained to use drugs in surgery. We're reimbursed to use drugs in surgery. So that's often what most doctors do. And if you have to see a new patient every 10 minutes, you know, you don't have time to talk about nutrition or for that matter what's going on in the family or the, you know, the kids or school or work or so on. And so that's why we're trying to create this new paradigm of healthcare, care yeah. uh, where we can now spend 72 hours, you know, but, but the doctor has a team of people. It's a nurse, a meditation teacher, exercise physiologist, dietitian, psychologist, all working together where the, the doctor can leverage his or her time to do that. And so the best way, I think, is a good example. Or, you know, buy your doctor a copy of my Undo It book. There are hundreds of scientific references that really can help your doctor understand the scientific basis for this. Uh, we'll take a, a few more before we wrap up. I really like this next question because I think that it's one, especially as more and more people open their eyes to preventative medicine, lifestyle medicine, they're wondering the same thing. Latrina writes, I'm going plant-based soon. Should the recommended daily calories for vegans be the same as the USDA guidelines? Why would they be different? I mean, it's, it's I don't know why they would. <laughs> to be honest with you. You know, calories are, are calories. Now, there are some people who say, you know, calories from carbs make you fatter than calories from fat. Uh, it turns out that Kevin Hall at the National Institutes of Health did a study, a very carefully designed metabolic ward study, where he controlled exactly what people were eating and how many calories they were getting. And he found that calorie for calorie, people gain 67% more weight by eating fat than by eating uh, carbs. But they're both important. I think what's happening is that people are taking this reductionistic approach. They think it's all fat or it's all sugar or it's all this or it's all that. It's not all anything. It's a well, And it's not even just all diet. It's all of these things together mm -hmm. that make a difference. Eat well, move more, stress less, love more. It really comes down to that. These are simple changes that anybody can do. And having seen what a powerful difference these changes can make and how quickly you can feel better and look better, 
you know, that's why I appreciate the chance to um, do these research studies to prove that and the chance to share with the people who are watching this now uh, what a difference this can make in your life. And like I say, because these changes can occur so quickly, just try it for a few days and you'll see for yourself. And then you'll say, oh, when I do this, I feel good. When I do that, I don't feel so good. So let me do more of this and less of that. And because it comes out of your own experience, then you know it, it's real and that makes it sustainable. Gwen was keying in on our conversation on cholesterol. She wants to know how much cholesterol does the body need to function? Uh, the dietary requirement for cholesterol is zero. Uh, you know, cholesterol isn't bad. Your body needs cholesterol as a building block for lots of important things, your sex hormones, your coverings of your nerves, your brain, and so on. But it's pre precisely because your body, because it is so important, your body will always make all that you need. Either the dietary requirement for cholesterol is zero. It's the extra cholesterol that we get in our diet that can then build up on our arteries and lead to problems. But you don't need any to, to be functional. Gabriel, what do you think of the diet based on blood type? Well, the blood type diet is a good example of why science is good, because it's one of those things that people make up that sounds like it might be plausible, except there's no scientific basis for it at all. Uh, Linda writes, do you have any insight on plant-based estrogens, edamame, tofu? Are they healthy or not? Well, within reason, they can be healthy because they have what are called phytoestrogens. And phytoestrogens are molecules that look enough like estrogen that they'll bind to the estrogen receptor, but they, don't, they only weakly stimulate it. It's kind of like imagine a key that'll go into a lock, but it doesn't open it. But it keeps the regular key from going in. And so the net effect of phytoestrogens is to bind to the estrogen receptor to keep the regular estrogen molecule from binding. So the net effect is to reduce the estrogen-like effects. And estrogen stimulates cell growth and proliferation, which under control can lead to breast cancer and prostate cancer and things like that. So in moderation, the phytoestrogens that you find can actually reduce your risk of cancer. Now, if you eat tons of them, you can actually theoretically get too much and it can be a problem. But for the vast majority of people, the phytoestrogens are actually help to prevent cancer. All right, we'll take three more questions. Post them below if you have one for Dr. Ornish. Uh, Raymond, uh, I think that this one is pretty straightforward. How do you feel about statins, Dr. Ornish? Well, like any drug, they have their place. You know, if somebody says, I'm not really interested in changing my lifestyle, uh, and they have heart disease, statins are a proven benefit. I just don't think they're the best first choice. And what, what often happens is a doctor says, oh, I know you're not going to change your lifestyle, and why would you want to anyway? Just take the statin, and that'll do it. And then the patient doesn't change, and the doctor says, see, I knew they wouldn't do it. It all becomes self-fulfilling. You know, self but if the doctor says, look, you have a choice. If you're willing to make significant changes in your diet, you can probably get your cholesterol down low enough that you don't need to be on statins. And then we go through the risks, the benefits, the costs, and the side effects of different approaches. And if you tell people that they can do it without drugs and give them the support they need to do that, most people would rather do that without having to take a pill. And like all drugs, statins have side effects both. And one of the most common side effects of statins is to increase your risk of diabetes. And since the, the, uh, the most common side effect or consequence of diabetes is heart disease, right. you end up often creating the very thing you're trying to prevent. I, you know, I, I think that a patient needs to reach a point where they are ready to change. You know, and, and it doesn't matter what the approach is, who their doctor is. If that patient isn't ready to make those lifestyle changes and they would rather pop that pill, then there's not much that any doctor can do. Is that, that has to be kind of frustrating on, on some level. Well, when someone's hurting, they're ready to change. You know, that's the whole point of suffering is the body's, it's your body saying, hey, listen up, pay attention. You're not doing something that's in your best interest. And so what we're trying to, to, to help people understand is that 
that's an that's a sacred moment when a patient comes to a doctor and says I'm hurting because there's an oper- there's an openness to change that you don't find because you know let's face it change is hard of any kind but if you're in enough pain then the idea of change becomes more attractive it's kind of like well you know I don't know changing my lifestyle or quitting smoking or exercising boy that's 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 hard but boy I'm hurting so bad <laughs> let me try this stuff yeah, yeah. and because again these underlying biological mechanisms are so dynamic when you make these changes most people feel so much better so quickly and then it comes out of their own experience and they often say things like you know having a heart attack was the best thing that ever happened to me or right. being 420 pounds or getting diagnosed with prostate cancer or whatever and the first time I heard that I said what are you nuts and they say no that's what it took to get my attention to begin making these lifestyle changes that have made my life so much more joyful yep. and meaningful and happy that I might not have done for me it was being suicidally depressed that's what got my attention that's why I began making these yep. changes it changed my whole life and through me the lives of millions of other people so sometimes there's an opportunity you know the the, the Chinese word for uh, crisis is opportunity. You know, when someone's hurting, there's a crisis, there's an opportunity for change. It's unfortunate that as a doctor, I'm trained to deal with pain to numb it or kill it or bypass it rather than to see that as a doorway for uh, really transforming our lives. All right, two more real quick. Are eggs really that bad? Well, it depends. Um, You know, most of the studies done on eggs uh, were funded by the egg industry. Neil Barnard, who uh, started the uh, Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, published a review on that recently. You know, people say that, you know, if you add a few eggs to your diet, your cholesterol level doesn't go up that much. But that's because the cholesterol receptors in most people are already so saturated because people eat so much cholesterol already. But it's not just the blood levels of cholesterol. It's the, you know, the, the fact that dietary cholesterol in our studies was directly linked with the amount of blockages in your arteries. And eggs are very high in cholesterol, particularly egg yolks. Eggs are also high in what's called TMAO, which is even more strongly linked with heart disease, even the cholesterol levels. And there was an article that came out from the Cleveland Clinic a few months ago that compared TMAO levels on what they called an Ornish diet, a Mediterranean diet, and an Atkins or a paleo or keto diet. And they found that the TMAO levels were normal on the diet I recommend, higher on a Mediterranean diet, and highest of all on the Atkins Paleo Keto diet. So, again, it's just another example of the more we learn, the more we see how these all, all, all affect each other. All right, last question. Jacqueline is asking you to do a little myth busting. He writes, is it true, even on a plant-based diet, once you are on a statin, you will always need it? No, that's not true. Um, you know, we have found in our randomized trials that the average LDL cholesterol decreased by 40% without drugs. And that's about what you get with most statins. Now, if someone isn't willing to make changes to that degree, they may be better off taking statins than doing nothing. But they need to know that for most people under their doctor's care, if they're willing to make big enough changes, the vast majority of people can reduce or get off these medications altogether. All right. The Exam Room Podcast brought to you by the Physicians Committee. We're going to post the full audio to this coming up this week, so make sure that you go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. Go ahead and subscribe to the show. New episodes each and every Wednesday. Can't promise that Dr. Ornish will be on every week. I wish. But we do have wonderful people. Dr. Barnard is on. So many others. We had Dr. Baxter Montgomery yesterday. He's on. That's a conversation I really want to share with you. Do you know Dr. Baxter Montgomery? No, I'd like to learn more about it. And by the way, just to let people know in closing that if you're interested in learning more about our work, go get our new book, Undo It. It's all there. Uh, That's up on uh, Amazon and wherever books are available? Wherever books are sold. I'm I'm interested in learning more about his work, though. Uh, He is a phenomenal guy, uh, and, and he really understood what it's like to be 
a patient struggling with obesity and that relationship between food and food addiction and just how to come at come at a patient with compassion and care and a warm approach as opposed to a cold approach yes. where the patient just automatically, no matter how good the message is, how on point that information is, if the doctor comes across as cold and callous, boom, patient shuts it down. Well, that's because, again, the real epidemic is loneliness and depression, and people use food to try to fill that void. Uh, they use food, alcohol, opioids, working all the time, video games. We have lots of ways of numbing or distracting ourselves from that pain. But if you can really connect with someone on a soul level and say, you know, I really care about you. You matter to me. You know, if you love your patients, tell them that. Or if you don't feel like you can do that, just say, hey, you know, you're, you're important to me. Just listen to them. Look at them. You know, I see you. Um, then people are much more likely to, it makes it easier for them to make lifestyle choices because the real underlying cause, that void, that loneliness, that isolation, this the fact that someone loves you and cares about you enough to, to really see you directly makes it easier to, for people to make healthy choices. The new book, Undo It, Go Get It. That is a must <laughs> read, boys and girls. Dr. Dean thank Orange, you. thank you so much for your time. Great pleasure. Thanks for inspiring us. Thank you. I wish you could have seen how many people wanted to meet Dr. Ornish. He is a living rock star in the world of preventative medicine. And he has such a powerful message too. Love more, stress less, and eat well. Those are words we should all live by. And right there close to the end of that conversation, we were talking about Dr. Baxter Montgomery. Now, that interview will be featured on next week's podcast, so stay tuned. And if you haven't already done so, please go ahead and subscribe to The Exam Room by the Physicians Committee on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your finest podcasts. Subscribe right now so that when the new show is released, you'll be the first to get that interview with Dr. Montgomery. And a little more on him, by the way. He is shaking up the cardiac care model in Houston in a big way by taking a patient-first approach. He was fed up seeing time and again his patients suffer devastating consequences of heart disease. And so out of that frustration, he founded the Montgomery Heart and Wellness Center with a mission that mission was to not just treat the disease, but to reverse it and prevent life-threatening illness. And the work he is doing in Texas today is top rate. And I can't wait to share our conversation with you. And so here's a two-minute clip to tide you over. Why is it? that you're so strict with that diet and I'll tell you why I asked that question after I get your answer. We get that question and the word strict and I like to turn that to the word precise. So for instance, you know, I said it's not a bite, not a drop. You have to be 100% compliant, not 99.99. So when the patients ask me the question, similar to what you ask, I'll say, well, if I'm going to implant your defibrillator pacemaker, do you want my gloves 90% sterile or 100%? So when they see it in that context, then we know the importance of being very compliant with the diet. That's number one. Number two is that we have to understand certain foods that we consume that are harmful to us are foods that we are, in fact, addicted to. Right. So whether it's baked chicken or baked fish or whatever the case may be. So if you eat, consume these foods in moderation, 
you will always consume them in increased amounts over time because you're addicted to it. So you never tell an alcoholic to consume alcohol in moderation. You said not a bite, not a drop, not a crumb, or in that case, not a drop. But the point is that you have to be very precise in your nutritional regimen because you're dealing with biochemical effects of food and you're dealing with the addictive nature of foods. I am so happy to hear you say that because I used to be 420 pounds. Wow. I understand. I never would have. <laughs> <laughs> I understand food addiction. Yes. And it is very serious. I yes. look at food the exact same way you were you were talking about. It's, yes. It's no different than any other drug. I talk That's about right. that a lot on this show. It's, That's right. It's the same as cocaine. It's the same as nicotine. It's That's the right. same as alcohol. Any, That's right. Any vice, it's exactly the same. Yep. It's, it's the same biochemically, but socially it's worse because... Those addictions are supported by society. Right. So nobody supports a crack cocaine addiction. Nobody supports an alcoholic addiction. But our society supports baked chicken addiction or bacon addiction. That full interview again in next week's show. My thanks again to the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund for making this week's episode of The Exam Room possible. That fund is exceptional in so many ways because it supports organizations carrying on Greg's passion and his love of animals through rescue efforts and veganism and even wildlife conservation. If you haven't already done so, please visit GregoryRyderFund.org. That's Gregory, R-E-I. TERfund.org, where you can learn more about Greg's incredible story and animal welfare issues, and you can even subscribe to their newsletter while you are there. You can also find a link to their website in the show notes for this episode. And be sure to check out Dr. Ordish's book, Undo It. That's out now on Amazon and wherever books are sold. And also be sure to give a couple of follows on social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Chuck Carroll WLC. That's Carroll with two R's, two L's, and the WLC standing for Weight Loss Champion. And the Physicians Committee, they're on Twitter at PCRM. And on the gram, a little bit differently, at Physicians Committee, written out. Follow us. We've got health facts and inspiration. And hit us up. Let us know if there's ever a topic that you'd like for us to cover. I got a lot of suggestions at at the conference, too. So we'll be rolling those out in the coming weeks as well. But for this week, that is all the time that we have. So for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember... Keep it plant-based.